Hello and welcome to the Commotion Mobility Podcast, your regular glimpse into the future of urban mobility. Today I'm joined by Bianca Wiley, who is the co-founder of Tech Reset Canada. Now Wiley has been described as the Jane Jacobs of smart cities, partly because she lives in Toronto, where Jane Jacobs lived most of her life, but more to the point is because Bianca is the biggest critic and activist against Sidewalk Toronto, the alphabet-financed smart city project on the Toronto waterfront uh, that would basically sort of transform a swath of, uh, of, of waterfront Toronto into a privatized city of sorts, collecting data for deployment of mobility, among other things. Uh, and while Bianca is not a mobility person per se, she was recently invited to speak at the annual confab of NACTO, the North American, uh, the National Association of Transportation Officials, if I remember NACTO's acronym correctly. Um, but yes, but Bianca was there to basically speak about what she saw as the dangers of some of the data collection policies that are being advanced by cities, such as the mobility data specification, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast. And so it's, it's great to have uh, Bianca here. We're in the field here at an urban conference ourselves uh, to talk a bit about some of the underlying issues. So thank you so much for joining us, Bianca. Thanks for having me. So I guess it was a way of framing device, you know, uh, you are not a mobility person. You are not deeply versed in all these matters, um, but you are a technologist and you have spent the last several years investigating sort of Sidewalk Toronto's plans or lack thereof. Um, but I guess the first question, you, you were invited to speak on sort of one of the opening panels at NACTO, and I was guess if you could talk a bit about, um, yeah, your, your approach to that room, your survey of the mobility landscape, and what you see as sort of the promise and, uh, and particularly some of the dangers uh, of, of the current approaches. Certainly. So some of my time uh, in Toronto was spent running public meetings. And so that's where I got some insight into transportation, transportation planning, um, how the public was engaged in discussions around that. And I think that is a great example of, you know, transportation planning and transportation operations are not highly accessible topics for the general public. So I remember when we would have a public meeting about, you know, a, a new development, uh, when the transportation planner would come up and show all the sort of the slides with rationale for choices, uh, it was really challenging to follow. And so I think it's always important to, to start before we get into the data piece is to already acknowledge sort of how inaccessible and technical and professionalized uh, transportation is as an area that people work in, right? So starting there, um, as professionals in transportation planning, I think there's a real um, awareness of the fact that you're doing work on behalf of the public for things that are agreed upon goals. You know, we wanna get people around, we wanna get them there safely, we wanna get them there as efficiently as possible. And what emerged from a lot of what I've learned about transportation planning is that it's a, you have a hard infrastructure problem. There's a commitment to cars uh, in mm -hmm. some spaces where there needs to be commitment to other things and other modes as well. And so what I find really interesting in the transportation discussion is if the core of your problem is a hard engineering problem that's around streets that are built already, mm -hmm. um, how much of your problem can you really resolve with technology and data? And I think what's happening right now, possibly, is because a lot of those hard problems really are hard <laughs> in terms of like can't really change the, the, the base, you get a lot of energy and excitement and frankly, I think a lot of um, untrue gesturing at what data and technology can do to resolve mobility issues. And so I think the first thing that I was there saying was, there's a lot of stuff going on in data technology and it sounds appealing, kind of part of the smart city discussion to think that you're gonna go over there and start to resolve problems, but you have to solve first principles problems often. And in this case, 
a lot of them won't be solved with technology. So that's always an important reminder when you can feel the sort of lack of finance and investment uh, for proper engineering solutions to mobility challenges. So that's always the first thing is great, like nice to add these things in, mm -hmm. but let's be honest about how much we can actually resolve with data technology, new mobility modes, the rest of it, right? So that was one thing. And then the second thing um, was really to talk about the fact that even as transportation planners and professionals that you are working on behalf of the public, um, and there's a there's an ethical requirement to do that. You know, when you work in as a planner, as a transportation planner, like you have to be the, the public is who you're working for. Um, using data and technology to advance mobility goals, you may be thinking, oh, I want to have all this data so I can help improve or you know provide more efficiency or maybe cut down on wait times or you know do yeah. these things, and that's all good and fine. But there's a problem, which is that I think transportation professionals are sitting right on the edge of, they're, they are holding on to extremely sensitive data, lots of data. There's a lot of, well, but we need it for X or for Y. And the problem is, while that may be true, if that was the only way it could be used, fine. But the reality of how data and digital stuff works is it's not. And so there's a bigger problem here around like, trade-offs discussions. Okay, so you can have all of that for this reason, but what about when someone comes to you and needs that data or tells you to just hand it over? And suddenly, the, the sort of context with which you thought about using it is completely different, whether that is police, whether that is a different federal or provincial regional agency, uh, and what, what do you do in that case? And so I think there's some ethical questions that we need to start really getting more into in terms of how much do you really need that information and if you don't really need it, maybe you have to start exerting some sort of professional ethics in terms of questioning uh, some of some of the, the usages of uh, data. Well, I guess the question, and I want to get into sidewalk at some point too, because there's, I mean, plenty of egregious behavior on the private side, which you're more famous for criticizing. But but just for example, because this is the most recent, you know, is um, is in Los Angeles and California, where the um, where the you know the legal body, the legal structures of California uh, issued a ruling, basically arguing that the mobility data specification there might have run afoul of the California Electronic Communications and Privacy Act, which was passed to prevent wire, uh, warrantless searches of police by devices. Um, but you know, the, the counter version of there is, is from LADOT and Celia Reynolds, who's their GM, is that, yeah, we have a rule against that. And part of our critique is like, I would like stronger rules. I would like to have legislative bodies pass, uh, you know, pass whatever is necessary to put that hard-coded that we will not hand over this data. So there's, a, there's an effort, I think, by some of these officials to try to create an actual better legal framework about some of what they're doing. The question is whether that's ever strong enough. But, um, but you know, I mean, I, I also want to talk a bit about, too, is, is you know, is, um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, are we fighting fire with fire? I mean, that's a debate, I think, that gets, around, that gets fought a lot in the Twitterverse, in particular, among mm -hmm. past and present former officials, about whether if, you know, if Uber and Lyft and... Bird and Lime and drone flyers are basically playing with fire and data collection. Is it right for city officials to fight fire with fire? So my question is A, that seems to be your argument, and B, can we have unilateral disarmament then? Because mm -hmm. it seems like that would be my personal next choice, but mm -hmm. that seems equally impossible. Mm -hmm. No, I think B is the way to go because I don't think anteing up because you've got, like this always gets into good faith, bad faith, good actor, bad actor. Once you have a whole bunch of stuff, you know, you can get into like data or other infrastructures. Uh, you can have had one intention and have that completely undermined depending on power or whatever the urgency becomes or the reason or the new rationale or the new act, right? Like, so I think what we have to always think about is what do we do now and then what are we, what are we trying to move toward? 
And I think if, if, if in the interim, there's a rationale to be using data in ways to make sure that you're checking someone's narrative, you know, to say, well, you have this information, now I need to, have, like, you know, public or city wants to have the same. Maybe, like maybe, and I think that's a space to have a really focused discussion about trade-offs. Because I think that may sound appealing, but the problem is I think at the end of the day, it's not worth it. And this is where everything escalates. And you say, hold on, everybody, what are we really driving at here? And if you have an actor that's not adhering to regulation, what, re what other regulatory mechanisms do you have? And you probably have quite a few. And that's where we need to start thinking because we're overdoing it on the data piece. There's tons of other ways to force accountability. So why are we trying to do it through data when data is the thing that we should be trying to minimize right now? Well, in that spirit, let's segue then to Sidewalk Toronto, where I think many of the, leader, the listeners of this podcast are vaguely familiar with the contours. I'll ask you to do the quick potted history of it, um, because they're aware that Sidewalk wants to build a city there. They have seen the lushly done images of, you know, autonomous vehicles and, you know, great, great in theory things like my favorite uh, Sidewalk thing, by the way, is the programmable pavement, the idea that a robot will flip over pavement and can create programmable streets. So they've seen all the renderings and the robots and the demos. Uh, could you, for our listeners, quickly do a recap of what has happened there and what in your mind has gone totally off the rails? Yeah, and I think I'll probably just stay in 2017 because for me, and I know this is sort of counter to most of what you hear about Sidewalk Toronto, to me there's a structural flaw in, and it was the government's fault, all three levels of government um, in Canada. They, they issued a request for proposal, basically asked a vendor to design you know, a neighborhood and then maybe maybe more, maybe scale it up a bit, um, but to do it in this way where even things such as governance were on the table. Mm -hmm. And so to my mind, what has been fundamentally wrong about this, and, and you can never fix it once it's out the gate, is you've assigned the role of what a government should do to a vendor, you know, just to frame it. And if there's no accountability in terms of decisions around everything from housing, transportation, you know, use of use of data and technologies, um, procuring things, it's it's super problematic. So it's been problematic since the beginning. And that now when we talk about all the different pieces of it, we never get back to the point of saying, why would this why would sidewalk labs be in a position to frame discussions about governance, local governance, right? Like how we live in a neighborhood. Why would the governments be handing over? But just to put that in context for this, before you continue, is, is like, you know, we've seen cities around the United States, for example, basically ask Uber to, you know, sub to subsidize ride hailing or ask Uber to provide transit coverage where they, as a small, sprawling community, would prefer not to do public transport. And the CEO of, of Uber has said, I would love to run the city's buses. So we could imagine cities basically going to some of the mobility vendors and asking, like, what solutions do you have, especially now that they're verticalizing. Right, but this is, for me, this is, this is negligence. Because government, if governments think that they can privatize public infrastructure and public assets without checking in with people before they do it, we have a serious crisis. And I think we know we've been having one for a long time in terms of what the roles are, the privatization, new public management, like we're coming off 30, 40 years of this. So it's not new. I'd say that's a slow burning crisis of, you know, kind of forgetting who does what, like whose job is what and how, how, how do we hold corporations accountable for the delivery of public services and mm -hmm. whose public service delivery is going to fail first when profitability is the problem? We know who that's going to be, right? It's As the people who can least afford to have their service delivery get worse. And the problem with a lot of this stuff is public, the management of public assets and public infrastructure is so dysfunctional right now that you can have companies come in and probably 
offer cost reduction, which in the, which in the immediate term is going to sound fantastic, but there's no way to have a commitment that that cost reduction will be maintained over the long term. And so it's these situations where, for, like for me, this stuff is so dangerous because they can even skip over government and go right to residents and have it sound like it makes sense. Yes. So this is really, really a governance problem. And so I'll just end it on saying with this point, if that's a thing that we come together as people and decide we want to do, that's on the table. But I know where I live, we did not have that conversation. So you don't get to just go and sort of outsource governance and accountability for public assets without checking in with the people who live there. That is a significantly negligent choice to make. Yeah. Well, in addition to the public process, what are some of the aspects of the Sidewalk Toronto, I hesitate to call them plan, because the plans are, of course, sort of in, in vague, we should mm -hmm. say. Um, but, you know, some of the proposals that have been floated, at least, include, you know, basically privatizing the streets in, in Toronto so that they could run congestion pricing, which is, of course, an area of interest, um, using some new data techniques on that, thinking about deployment of autonomous vehicles, the programmable streets for allowing that. I was wondering if you could talk about some of these aspects and, yeah, why they are, how, how they've been proposed, how to be implemented, and why that would be problematic as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the first thing, just to always anchor this back to 2017, because I have to, is... Um, this was presented to people in Toronto as like, let's come up with a plan together. And then if you want to do it, fine. And if you don't, no problem. And since that date and that sort of framing, it has just been, well, we're going to do this now. How are we going to do it? Like sort of the, the, the should we or not has just come right off the table, which is mm -hmm. like, again, this is, this is really problematic from an accountability perspective. So when you start to frame discussions about the mobility ideas that, that, you, that you raised here, um, the problem is, residents then start responding to them. If you would have asked people who may live there if any of these things would be on their top one, two, three things they might want to have on the waterfront, I don't know that that's what you'd come up with, right? Yeah. So this idea that in this, in this very unique piece and large, large piece of real estate, you would be assigning space to be testing autonomous vehicles, who does that serve first? Yeah. Right? Is, Who does that serve first? Is that the highest and best use is a right. question that was not asked. Right. And I think this is the stuff that, yes, we can get into, you know, does it do this on safety? Does it do this on X? But then we're missing that first conversation we should have had. So in terms of the specifics, I think the way this consultation is really problematic is, you know, when you start asking people, you know, do you want to have walkable streets? Do you want to have this? Do you want to have, of course, like, who's, who's going to say no? Right? Do you want it to be so you can cycle more safely? Of course. And so... It's just that you get sort of assigned this batch of mobility innovations, which, okay, like not to say that some of them might not be worth exploring, absolutely. But the problem here again is you have this whole mixed bag of, of narratives in this project where when you talk to a politician at the federal level, they have no idea about mobility. They're thinking, oh, there's gonna be a Google headquarters down there, so we're thinking about this as, as a job creation deal. And this and this, right? So it gets piecemeal uh, sort of really mixed up. And so if you return to the mobility piece and you talk within the mobility um, sort of framing, the problem here is you've got, there's too much going on to be able to pull it into, it's like really small pieces to say, okay, if, if we're looking at this area, what the, why, why would we be having these things? How would we maybe be using that data? Why mm -hmm. is that a thing that we wanna get into here? Um, and those, those are the conversations you need to have. So in terms of like the real specifics around what the plans are there, for me, as soon as you fall too far down there, you know you're, 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 
you're having the wrong conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I think for me, a lot of this stuff comes down to absolutely try things, absolutely do innovation, right? Like work on new products, fine. But we haven't set out a governance framework for how you manage what happens in those spaces, right? So it's completely reasonable to have a sandbox to work on mobility things that the government may set up somewhere that's not on prime real estate, first of all, and where there's no safety issues because it's not supposed to be anybody there. And then you can, you know, do, do some of this stuff and, and figure it out a bit. So it's like, how do we protect space to think about that thoughtfully, yeah. not just in this reactive response of like, oh, you brought us seven things and we're also overwhelmed. And then you have people jockeying to be like, oh, we want to do the first thing here or the first thing there. Um, this is this this is a place where people should be living soon. Mm-hmm. So mixing these two things together, uh, there's a lot going on there. And so I don't know if you want to sp- like if you want me to speak to any of the very specific well, mobility interventions. But the problem is, I think you fall down the hole into the wrong conversation. Well, the one one, one I would like to touch upon, I think is I think I read in your work is particularly about some of the stuff on congestion pricing because that, if I understand correctly, without formulating or advancing a concrete plan, they asked the city of Toronto if they could basically make their streets exempt from the public street network to eventually privatize them so they could implement congestion pricing on their own and figure that out. So they asked for the right to implement congestion pricing without actually even discussing what that plan might be. Um, you know, one A, I'm wondering if that's correct, and B, if you've seen anything else since then, like how they would attempt to actually implement that. So it seems like they're asking, asking for rights to things they haven't floated proposals to, which sounds a bit familiar sometimes. Right. Yeah. So on on that point, I think uh, just to be, I think to be, I don't know the specifics of each one of these pieces in terms of how they want to go after jurisdictional, uh, you know, expansion or, because, I think the place to start is to say that they asked Waterfront Toronto, like in their proposal, there were sort of two approaches. One of them is give more power to Waterfront Toronto to oversee more jurisdictional, um, you know, more different spaces, whether it's mobility or housing and zoning, whatever we want to talk about, or to set up new uh, organizations. I'm not sure exactly what the governance structure would be of them. Um, The problem there with both of those is, of course, Waterfront Toronto, not, you know, is not an elected, this is the, you have a board of directors making decisions there, right? So yeah, there's no, so, there's so no democratic accountability. New York it's, it's, parlance is sort of like a port authority structure. It's government appointees from various levels creating a board that's accountable in very opaque ways. Right, and so in yes, <laughs> and not open meetings, and you know, and it, and they're really charged with doing real estate development. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the whole point of that thing. So about something like a congestion pricing thing. And I, I don't doubt that if that's floated, it would then still be going back out to public, right? But I think for me, this is all this is the role confusion again, which is like, why, why are we leaning into something that they have clearly put forward when we know, and this is always the dual mandate, may, would that do something for congestion? Possibly, not saying it wouldn't, but whose interest does it serve primarily to be going down that track if it's coming from a company? Yes. Right? So for me, it's always, and I know I'm staying a level up here, but because it's so important to keep, like sometimes I feel like I'm like, wow, have we forgotten that corporations have different you know, people they answer to than governments? Like, and if this has gotten this murky, again, like this for me is like we're really, and it is that murky right now, to be able to think that that's a thing you can put on the table, right? Yeah. That you as a private company think that's something that you should be putting forward. So. Isn't an, is that an idea to discuss within the city or within the province? Yes. But who frames it and who sets it up? To me, again, that should be government and residents. And then yes. we need to think about the different reasons. Because 
it's you know if if you rush into these things and then you don't understand the consequences you don't understand why they're doing it you don't understand the long-term play you don't you know so yeah, the thing the thing I think I understand in your writing about this is is that the is that the villain and your and your uh, you know in this morality play is not ultimately the private entity of sidewalk Toronto it is waterfront Toronto the quasi public entity which forgot its role and asked a private vendor to inter- to play the role of government rather than embody that that, that role itself that basically the government asked to abdicate itself from its responsibilities um, and I think that is a universal lesson that should that we should all cities should basically keep an eye on to make sure that they do not in fact hand over the design part of any system to the private sector you are nodding vigorously so very vigorous things. nodding yes you've got that right you've got um, that right I, well, I guess to, to quote The Simpsons, it's easy to criticize and fun too, but I'm, I'm curious if you've seen and you are out there on the circuit, you know, talking about this project and also at NACTO, are there examples of governance that you've seen like that for, for digital governance for, you know, public institutions that have difficulty understanding the technology, how it might be implemented? I mean, you have a technical background in addition to a public uh, meetings background, you mm-hmm. left brain, right brain. Those figures are few and far between. So who mm-hmm. do you think is doing a good job of this, if anybody? Or what, what's a model of how we should do governance for these kinds of projects and vendors? Yeah, like this is not, this is the part that I find, so it, there's an economic development problem here. And, and so let's just put this on the table, which is cities, countries, provinces, everybody right now wants to be an innovation X, innovation city, innovation nation. They want to, you know, be leading on, you know, whether it's um, intellectual property, artificial intelligence, chips, like we are talking multi-billion dollars of our economy is being bet on data because data is, is the food for much of it. It's right? the new oil, Bianca. <laughs> no, it's not. And it's feeling for me very, I'm feeling very bubbly. I'm feeling very late 90s about a lot of the way people are talking about data. But the reason this intersects with your question is because we are in a, are we, this is like a, are we eating our tail problem? Because if the, if the thing that you need to fuel your economic development, your growth, your jobs, what you think is the future of your economy is the same thing that I would argue we should be minimizing, how do we manage that tension, right? If so, what, you're going to cut off the entire input to that industry? No. So then what does it look like for me? Some of this may be, and I'm dangerously nostalgic, and as I've probably mentioned to you, nostalgia is, is poisonous, so you have to watch this, but there are ways for cities, countries, regions, provinces, to be leaders in technology without it being data-based technologies, right? You can get into, like, look at the issues we're having with climate, I'm, right? Like, there's... there's... But I just say by database, you mean the mass collection model. Yes, so, the yes. hoarding. The, like, this is why I, I even challenge some of the cities you hear as the cool kids, Barcelona, Amsterdam. The, the argument that this now becomes a public asset does not acknowledge the power asymmetry. So you put something and make it open or public, you and I, Greg, access to that data is a very, very different situation than a company who's been sitting on decades of data collection, right? So it sounds more sharesy, friendly, whatever, but it doesn't necessarily resolve the problem. And you get into a whole bunch of economic nationalism. So the rationale becomes we need to collect this because we need to support local entrepreneurs or we it's need a to... very right? EU stance, right? Yeah, yeah, Lots yeah. of EU documents about, you know, yeah, fourth industrial revolution, we need to support this. Absolutely. So I think the, the, the thing I would say is that the cities that are now going to start leading on, 
you know, whether it's marine engineer, coastal engineering, right, health, but like real, like sit in a hospital, look at the beautiful technologies that people have put together to help people. This is really part of technology and innovation. So it's like cities that can take technology as a topic and get off this consumer surveillance like input for it and remember that software hardware engineering robotics all of these things that makes you an innovation player too yes right so i think that for me as a technologist is i'm sure i could give you but this is why i say nostalgic i can probably find you lots of cities around the world that forever have been known for x or y or z and that comes you know company town stuff not great either so i'm not suggesting that you disregard like what a big actor means when you do that but in terms of creating sort of ecosystems where you have content specialists and and a lot of knowledge on something and something that and this is beautiful because it can relate to your to your local like if you're a city if you're a port town you have water there so you have stuff to work with right in terms of like you want to talk about a lab use it in a way that's like that's that's a great lab yeah. Right, get down to the water and try to understand what are we going to do with as the water's rising? What are our options? How are we working with those things? What are the materials we need to use to sort of think through some of the problems that we're facing? And this isn't greenwashing technology stuff. I mean, and this is where I get nervous when I listen to the United Nations and the SDGs and the whole like we need AI for environmental XYZ. And I'm thinking, uh oh, like here this comes with the new face because where I'll bring this back to cities and to mobility data is. If you can have like a 13% reduction in whether it's energy consumption or you make trips faster and you're reducing emissions or you're doing something, that's good. Do you do that at the cost of having a fully finished surveillance state surveillance city? That is not good. And I think we need to be better at holding those two together and saying, okay, but the cost here is too high. So let's think about a different way to get to the outcome. Because for me, when I start to see those global institutions falling into the technology as greenwashing stuff, that that, that makes me deeply nervous because that means we're gonna punt this problem again. We're gonna keep doing it for another five years as no. we're in the sort of greenwashing mix. So that's like, that's my answer for that is like, tech, like I wish more people were, were um, confident and given that literacy as politicians you can stand up and say i reject this model of technology but we're an innovation city and look how we're doing it over here and this is big industry and this is big market and we're going to be good and we're going to good you know so i think that and the green new deal have a place to find each other and for cities to start picking up the like okay this is the thing that we're going to get known for and this is where we're going to connect into our universities and we're going to do it in a really thoughtful way rather than this idea that we're pro- you can't productize the city the question the question i have then put back to you is is you know the reason things like the mobility data specification got started was and the reason there is a fight fire with fire approaches is because there's already a fire so the last question i have for you then is we have all these private actors who are employing a mass collect mass data collection model with their consumers, we might argue that they, you know, are not reading their terms and the terms of service mm-hmm. uh, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are they are enthusiastically giving away that data to private companies, which then increase their power over the public realm. Yeah. So, I mean, other than like you know digital antitrust or or whatever other yeah. legal remedies, um, how do we push back about their encroachment on the public sphere when they are able to employ that data collection model? 
with no impediments. Yeah, and so this for me is a good example of short-term, medium-term. So medium-term, I think what we need to be working on, we need to start it now, is what a collective law around privacy looks like. Because all the regulation right now is individual. It's individual, even the GDPR, which people love to say, oh, let's just pick up the GDPR and implement it here, does not resolve the fundamental problem that you're not considering privacy as a public good. So what is a legal mechanism that might raise the floor? Because the the, the rights frameworks, they're, they're not really globally interoperable in the same way that if you have like a, and this is very Sean McDonald world of like why you should think about some of these data assets as property is because the legal constructs around how you manage that mm -hmm. um, it has a better uh, global fit, which matters when you're dealing with something like technology because you have the borders not really mattering in a lot of cases. So, um, so I think thinking through that, and it, it manifests in so many different spaces that I always think about these stories with Amazon Ring and how you're empowering people. Like you've got the state and a corporation working lockstep, working together, working collaboratively to, to arm people against each other, right? So, so that's legal and they can come and say, no, I asked for your consent and the police have to come and ask you. And it's like, yeah, okay, but Same you're ignoring for, all the power infrastructures here, right? Like, the next step there, of course, is Amazon has the right that police departments can't even mention Amazon Ring without written permission from Amazon. So there we actually see the businesses employing even more power over its public sector client through its, yeah. through its use of so, the technology. Yeah, so this to me is why like thinking through what is it, because Amazon knows there's no collective privacy, like there's no collective privacy construct that that becomes the impediment here. So I think this is why, for me, this really comes down to this is why institutions and governments are so important is because this stuff should just be safe infrastructure for us to live in that we don't have to read, think about, individually negotiate, manage, parse, consent, not. Like you shouldn't set people up to screw their neighbor over. Why are we doing that? This is what this stuff does. It entrenches and accelerates these pre-existing power problems. So I think that for me is, is the meat in the interim, you know, we're going to have to look at what we do, like ante up, you know, come, you know, come to the table, call people out. How do you, but when we're seeking accountability from these actors, all this one-off, one-off, one-off law here, blah, 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 blah. Like it's, it's too much. So I think we, we need to get that medium term legal construct sorted. And maybe I'm wrong and that is not the right mechanism, but some sort of thinking around how we do that. So it's not up to me or you individually to make choices anymore that we have like a, a safe floor is important. So maybe law, maybe a law is not the thing, but something that would do that, I think is, is the vehicle that we need to get toward. And you need to bring all these different professions to the table. You need to have a mobility person arguing for why they want X and Y, and then you need to bring somebody in from you know, intellectual property. You need, to, you need to have these tables where we don't talk about this uh, in a siloed way, because yeah. we're not getting there. Well, we're almost out of time, but really, again, coming back to uh, it's easy and fun to criticize, but are you constructing that now? Are there any frameworks in which we can build that? Is Tech Reset Canada working on that in a Canadian context? You know, how do we take steps towards what you're describing? Right, so I think, and I, I try to be really careful in um, introducing or sharing work that is not mine. So I think I have to say I'm really lucky in Toronto that I get to work with lots of different people who have been raising ideas around this stuff for you know decades. And so I think in, the, um, in, in Canada, one thing that I'm looking a lot at and trying to figure out how we, how we uh, like sort of integrate things is looking at other systems of law, other systems of norms, and in times of like reconciliation, there are a lot of things going on in Canada around like how do we have nation to nation proper discussions? Like there's in many indigenous laws, there are other ways of like organizing and sharing spaces. 
Um, and so I think there's a lot of leadership in, in uh, different First Nations communities and other in, in Canada looking at some of these issues because um, they've been doing that for decades. And so I don't want to prescribe the, um, what the output is or to say like that's the thing, but I think in honoring that work and understanding how to, um, you know, never, never take it and say, okay, this is a thing, now we're going to put it in a Western context is not the point. But the point is to say, there are lots of people thinking through these things in very different ways. And some of them aren't even legal. Some of them are like, you know, cultural and how do we like acknowledge and, and um, value non-quantitative knowledge and, and approaches to things. So I'm not trying to dodge the, like the, the prescriptive, like, it's not like I, I have a thing where I'm going to say, go look at this, go look at that. Cause I think we really need to do work right now, which is why I want to hold space for like a medium term solution. It takes a long time to extricate yourself from Western liberal thinking. Like it really does. It's like, I catch myself, I catch myself, I catch myself. So I think we need to right now really just, you know, really put our elbows up and like hold some space to pull ourselves out and look and say, Hey, many sectors are dealing with some of these issues that are really about interrogating like how is this liberal democracy thing working how how do we work for the collective the commons gets put up a lot but there's issues with the commons too like we need to think about how we're managing shared resources and assets and um so i think we should be thinking a bit more and, and looking around a bit more before we start pointing out well let's do this or let's do that because i think if we do that too fast that's kind of like that gdpr grab where it's like no no no, no hold on that's not right either so let's just try to pull some stuff out and, and think about it and uh set that table when we come together um in a, in a way we haven't set it before like a really thoughtful setting of the table with stories and ideas and um, different approaches and then try to take it from there which i know no one wants to go slow but right now we do have to go a bit slow in some cases. So let's mitigate the worst, but let's also like, yeah, make, make nice space for that. So. Well, thank you for, thank you for coming on the podcast here. It's a, it's been a fascinating half hour of, uh, of tough love and cautionariness for those of us who've been excited about things like the open mobility foundation to see cities pushing back and actually sort of restaking their claim. It's good to have you on here to remind us that perhaps fighting fire with fire is not always the best tactic. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, well, listeners, we'll be back soon with another episode of the uh, Commotion Mobility Podcast. Uh, tune in, and uh, we'll see you then. Bye.